Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Dressed, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And April Callahan. Dress listeners, midriff tops, flannel shirts, chokers, and platform shoes. Oh my, we are back with part two of our two-part episode about fashion in the 1990s. And we are joined all week by Colleen Hill, who is a curator of costume and accessories at the museum at FIT. And her book, Fashion in the 90s, is the exhibition catalog for a forthcoming exhibition at the museum. We don't know exactly when this is going to open yet, but TBD. Yes, and earlier this week, the two of you, April, discussed how grunge subculture style worked its way onto high fashion runways, and also how luxury goods of the 90s were often intentionally distressed and broken down by the deconstructionists of the era. And today, we turn our attention to that, quote-unquote, other 90s big thing, minimalism. So without further ado, welcome back, Colleen. So... You know, perhaps in direct response to grunge and also deconstructionism, we also see this other polar opposite again of the, a renewed interest in luxury um, beginning in the mid-1990s. So how did this unfold in, in my estimation, the hands of two of the greatest designers of this period, Tom Ford and John Galliano? And I just, yes, Galliano. Is problematic in certain arenas, but from a design standpoint, like how did luxury play out in their collections? Sure. Well, I attribute much of the return to luxury and the revival of numerous established fashion houses to Tom Ford. Um, he'd actually been hired at Gucci in 1990, I believe, but it wasn't until the mid-decade. He kind of seems to come out of nowhere, and he's presenting collections that were heavily inspired by the 1970s and really sexy. But at the same time, they were chic and they were a little bit minimalist. It was like he was working within what other designers were doing, but also doing his own thing. So it's like this perfect moment of pushing fashion forward. And I believe that was a big part of his success. So Gucci kind of seemed to be revitalized overnight. Suddenly, Tom Ford and Gucci were absolutely everywhere. And I really think that led to a wave of new appointments at some of these established fashion houses. So Galliano is initially hired at Givenchy for their couture and ready-to-wear collections, but he is quickly bumped over to Dior 
and Alexander McQueen takes his place at Givenchy. And this was such a fascinating thing to track in things like Women's Wear Daily because there are so many rumors and it was really difficult hot to tell. Scandal, hot scandal, hot fashion gossip. <laughs> There's a great article where someone is questioning McQueen, are you going to go to Givenchy? And he's basically like, no, I don't speak French. I'm not interested in that. And then, of course, like two months later, it's announced officially that he's at Givenchy. So it was this really interesting, it's not quite the merry-go-round of designers that we have today, but it starts that idea that, for example, Michael Kors is hired at Celine, Narciso Rodriguez at Lueve, Marc Jacobs at Louis Vuitton, Gasquier at Balenciaga, someone again that no one had really heard of prior to that. And suddenly he's taking over this big label. One of my favorites, Stella McCartney at Chloe. All of this happens either prior to or during 1997. So it's a really interesting time where all of these fashion labels are seeing the potential of hiring edgy, young or younger designers to take over uh, these established houses. Infusion of new blood is what I would kind of categorize it as. And I just want to turn our attention a little bit further to Galliano because one of the things that he is best known for is his ability to kind of like gather a lot of references to fashion history and jamming them all together in sort of this postmodern amalgamation of opulent pastiche. And Patricia Mears, of course, uh, contributed a chapter on runway shows to the book. Um, And she references Galliano's A Voyage on the Disorient Express collection from 1998. (laughs) And, And this is such a sublime example of his very unique brand of pastiche. So I'm hoping that you could talk a little bit about historicism in Galliano's work, and also perhaps some of your other favorite designers of the 90s who were actively mining history for inspiration. Absolutely. Yeah, I think Galliano is certainly on the top of that list for designers who are looking at historic fashion. And what I found really interesting working on this show was that in the museum at FIT Collection, we have an ensemble from Galliano's spring 1992 collection, which was for his own label. And it's based on this 18th century aesthetic that he had explored in his graduation collection for Central St. Martin's almost a decade prior. So I think particularly thinking about the 18th century, that's something he comes back to a lot. When he gets to Dior, he's also looking a lot at Dior's legacy. So looking at 1950s fashion and the new look, which is in and of itself in many ways based on 19th century fashion. So there's all of these layers already existing in fashion that he really plays upon. And I think part of what made him so successful was this over-the-top opulence and pastiche and sort of endless ideas and creativity. And again, some of it, even during the 90s, prior to the this scandal, was problematic. And um, we'll probably talk a little bit about appropriation. Yeah. Um, but it was really exciting. And he was someone who 
completely understood the significance of, for example, a couture collection that almost nobody would buy, but everybody would love to see and then go off and buy a handbag or a pair of sunglasses or a perfume or something that was much more attainable from the Dior brand. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm, I absolutely want to talk about cultural appropriation. <laughs> and you know, in the book that fashion historian Caroline Evans she describes the decades sort of scavenging aesthetic and not all of the scavenging was actually historic. It wasn't just mining, you know, American or European history. It was oftentimes cross-cultural. So we now see this as problematic, but my question to you is how were designers using global inspirations during the 90s and How was that viewed at this time? Because you and I have actually talked about this, and I think that there was a very different sort of way that they were thinking about this in the 90s versus how we see it now 30 years later. Absolutely. Yeah, I wrote a chapter for the book that I called The Global Wardrobe, and it will also be part of the exhibition. It was a really tricky subject to tackle because essentially it relates to an expansion of globalism during the 1990s that were due to developments in technology, economic changes, political changes. And so in many ways, this idea of this small world was really exciting for people. And it did evolve into this kind of melange of cultural styles. And as I was researching for the book, I found that Chinese-influenced fashions were especially common, and that in part relates to the growth of China as an economic powerhouse. So people were increasingly looking to China and, of course, finding all sorts of beautiful references to it. Um, There were also a lot of references to African fashion, and I use that very loosely because it is a It's an entire continent. An entire continent. 54 countries, friends. Very problematic (laughs) in and of itself, but that is what's used again and again. So as we look at designers from the 90s, there are, of course, Chinese designers and Chinese American designers and African and African American designers who are working within this aesthetic. But there are also plenty of European designers who and, and Western designers in general who don't have any ties to these cultures who are very inspired by them. So I think by the end of the decade, it was widely accepted that this could be considered stealing, but it was really celebrated prior to that. And I think, of course, that doesn't make it right, but I think it's very important for us to look at the full picture of fashion culture from that time. And a great example is Jean-Paul Gaultier. He is a white European designer who was regularly inspired by other cultures, and he's done a lot of interviews about it, which made it very helpful for me. So he talks about how he sees other cultures as beautiful, and he was raised to look at anyone and find beauty in them. So he's coming at it from a genuine point of view, and he wants to celebrate this through his designs. And it's also worth noting that he was someone who did find beauty everywhere. He regularly used atypical models and celebrated people of all sizes and races and ages long before anybody else was doing that. But in interviews during the 21st century, he does start to refer to these references as stealing. He understands what that means. So there's a really obvious shift in thinking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. After this word from our sponsors, more with Colleen. 
Welcome back. So we cannot talk about the 90s without talking about the rise of the supermodel and also the runway show. So, you know, in the 90s, the supermodel becomes this sort of cultural phenomenon. And and it's not to say that supermodels, quote unquote, hadn't existed before. They certainly had. But in the past, their status as supermodels was more of a sort of insider industry recognition. They maybe wouldn't be celebrities as the 90s supermodels became. So what was it about this moment that really allowed models, the top models, to become bona fide celebrities? That's a question I considered when working on the book, but it didn't quite make it into the text. So I'm glad we're talking about it here. (laughs) Um, I found a really interesting article from The New Yorker, and I think it's from 1991, that actually addresses this exact phenomenon really early in the decade. We love the primary sources that answer (laughs) our fashion history mystery questions. Exactly. And this article mentioned that fashion was in a state of disarray. I'm assuming the author meant what we were talking about earlier, that there are just all of these disparate styles, and it was really difficult to define fashionable moments. And so this person says that models had actually come to define the moment in fashion more than any other designer. So it's like the unifying force between all of these things. Yeah. So if you see Naomi on every great runway, she's the person who's bringing her walk and her personality and her general appearance and creating this consistency throughout fashion. And I found that really fascinating. Uh, And I think on the other side of that, there's a real shift in how fashion is consumed and perceived by the public. And I think a great example of that that I remember well and was fascinated by as a kid was House of Style on MTV. Yeah, loved it. Loved it. Still very good if you rewatch it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And it was initially uh, hosted by Cindy Crawford. And she includes a lot of great clips with other models. So for example, I just last weekend watched an interview with a very young Kate Moss. And she's kind of giddy and charming. And she's talking about her desire to have a family. And it's not the kind of Kate, if you can get an interview with her now, that you would expect today at all. Obviously, she's much younger, but you can really get a sense of why people related to these models. Mm-hmm. Um, there's another great clip with Naomi where she, for the camera, shows her evening routine. So she washes her face and then she puts on zit cream and then she makes some kind of joke. Even models have to wear zit cream. And, you know, it's, it's a really charming thing that masses of people saw. So it really helped to elevate their fame in a new way. Yeah, and also, uh, let, let's just, like, uh, point out what maybe the school of the obvious, this is pre-YouTube, friends. So that, like, insider glimpse into a quote-unquote influencer's life, this was on television. It wasn't on the internet. It wasn't on OnlyFans. Um, <laughs> you know, this was this was 30 years ago, really, when this was happening. And also, too, you know, um, that connection to the mass appeal of catwalk shows or runway shows. This was a whole other thing that also shifts in the 90s because aside from seeing the models in the glossy pages of the magazine, now via the internet, runway shows, which had formerly kind of only been created or or put on for 
industry insiders like fashion editors and buyers, whether they be buyers for department stores or private clients. Runway shows were, that was really kind of only for them in the 50s, 60s, even into the 70s. But in the 90s, we see this like massive jump of, you know, fashion week and runway shows into the popular consciousness. Do you have any thoughts on this? Yes. Yeah. I think this is really the moment where we start to see, as you mentioned, the idea of publicists pushing aside journalists and buyers to people who were typically in the front row at fashion shows and replacing them with celebrities that would help to more obviously elevate the brand. And that is partly because more people were able to view these shows. So if you saw your favorite actress in the front row, you would know who she was. You might not know who a particular fashion editor was by appearance only. And then there are also a handful of designers who started to do really provocative shows. Um, Alexander McQueen is a great example of that. Uh, He, often working with Simon Costin, would come up with these really incredible, elaborate shows, usually kind of on a dime. It was mostly about creativity. And also, as we mentioned, Galliano, Hussein Chalayan did some really interesting presentations. I mean, when you convert a dress into a table, just saying... So fascinating. Exactly. (laughs) I mean, and just the whole production of it was so interesting. And then, of course, again, one of my favorites, Margiela, who was literally staging fashion shows in places no one had ever thought of, a derelict playground in a far-flung neighborhood in Paris, or my very favorite, a Salvation Army. So fashion editors were sitting on old washing machines. I mean, that's not (laughs) an experience you're going to forget anytime soon. So he's really making a statement, but at the same time, ensuring that people remember these presentations. Yeah. And, and, you know, in Patricia's uh, chapter in the book, when she's talking about a lot of the runway shows in the title of that chapter, she uses the word spectacle. And that's really what it became. It was almost like this fashion show as entertainment, not fashion show as commerce, which I think is really interesting at this like specific period of time. So let's talk about models more, if we may. You've referenced Kate Moss earlier. And and in the 90s, we see this very marked shift within the modeling industry away from the quote-unquote so-called glamazons of the 80s and early 90s towards this sort of wayfish look that, that Kate Moss really embodied. I'm hoping you could talk a little bit about why that was termed heroin chic and this shift to, and you know, as fashion historians, we often use this term, quote unquote, ideal body type of a, of a given decade. But in the 90s, this, this is a major shift. It is. Yeah. And heroin chic isn't something that I got into too much in the book, because to be honest, I think other people have done it better. Um, But I do think it's a really interesting thing to touch on briefly. Uh, Heroin was, in fact, an issue, obviously. And for example, Davide Sorrenti died from a heroin overdose, and and he was a photographer. And that was 
a big blow for the fashion industry and something that people talked about. And particularly in later years, models like Jamie King have come out and said she was literally given heroin on one of her first fashion shoots and she was something like 13 or 14 years old. Uh, What the hell? (laughs) This was a problem. It really was. But on the other end of the spectrum, um, it's interesting to think about these differing body types sort of separate from potential drug issues or drug usage. Um, So, for example, some people have interpreted the shift to this wayfish model as, in some ways, a good thing, if you can imagine that, because the real perfection of someone like Cindy Crawford, Mm. for example, was very difficult to achieve. And so... Now, of course, Kate Moss is considered one of the greatest models in all of history. But surprisingly, when she was very young, she was extremely atypical. She didn't look like anybody else. She didn't have perfect teeth. She didn't have perfect hair. She was considered too thin. Uh, She was short by model standards. Yeah, she's like five foot six or something like that, right? Yeah, she's quite petite. And you can see when she's standing next to other models from the time that she is really tiny. So she did have things working against her. Um, And that's really important to consider as well. So again, it's multi-layered. It's a big picture thing. So there's no real straightforward answer. But like so many things in 90s fashion, it's kind of one shift to the next. Yeah, for sure. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For limited time dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Dress listeners, we often refer to ourselves on the show as dress detectives, but what if we told you that you could travel back in time and solve your own fashionable mysteries? Because you can, by joining us in playing June's Journey. And April, I can't tell you how much fun I've had playing June's Journey. It's this (laughs) hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour and intrigue of the 1920s with this diverse cast of characters. And basically, each new scene takes you further into the story of a thrilling murder mystery that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. You will sleuth with June in the antique parlors of New York, the chic sidewalks of Paris, and you can even build your own luxury island estate where you get to decorate and plant decadent gardens. And there's also a chat and challenge feature where you can play alongside friends. 
So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. There's so much wonderful fashion photography um, documenting all of this in the book. And I know you were doing a ton of work researching all these images and all the image permissions, which we've talked about on the show before, about how when you're writing a book, you should really kind of think about how you're going to get all the images before you even write the darn thing. But I'm curious if you have any favorite sort of fashion editorials or spreads from this era? Because one of the things that I think goes unnoticed a lot of times when we're just like flipping through fashion magazines is that the amount of work that goes into an editorial. Because you have, of course, the designer, right, who created the clothes. You have the models themselves who are actively, as their job, trying to embody whatever that ideal body type is. You have the, you know, hair and makeup people who are creating these beauty standards of the era. And all of this is yet again reflected through the lens, pun intended here, of the photographer and also the art director. So do you have a particular like shoot that kind of embodies the spirit of the 1990s for you? Well, actually what I would like to highlight for this question is a photograph that I was not familiar with prior to working on this book. And one of the things for me that was a challenge, but also kind of fun when working on this was that it was done during COVID. So my access to a lot of materials, including physical magazines, was limited. Um, So thankfully, we had a really good idea of what we wanted to include, but there were certain things that cropped up. uh, And one of my favorite images is an example of that. So my editor and I were both wanting to include an image of Bjork because obviously Bjork is such an ethereal beauty, but she was also very popular both uh, in the music world and in the fashion world during the 1990s. And uh, we have Nick Knight's great photograph of her in a McQueen ensemble in the book, but we wanted something that was a little more editorial. So we started to search on the internet and late one night I managed to find a photograph I don't know what I was searching and how it came up but I managed to find a photograph <laughs> rabbit hole exactly <laughs> like way down at the bottom and I think it was something like 11 p.m you know it was getting late which um, for us is late yes for us is late and especially when you're staring at a screen trying yeah. to find photos of Bjork is not necessarily what most people are doing at that time <laughs> <laughs> but anyhow, I found this great photograph of her wearing one of Margiela's sweaters made from socks, made from army socks, which is a pretty famous design. If you're familiar with it, you can easily spot it. We have a couple examples at the museum. So I knew immediately what it was. And that was really important for a few reasons, not only because it was Bjork, not trying to look beautiful, but in fact, kind of squinting in the sun, but still, of course, looking beautiful. Um, But also, 
she's wearing this great sweater that I recognize. And that was important because so many images of her from the 90s show her wearing something fantastic. And you're like, is it Helmut Lang? Is it Jill Saunder? It's kind of hard to tell. And because I didn't have access to these physical magazines and people don't credit things well, I didn't always know. So this was something, certainly I knew what she was wearing. And then to add another layer of luck to this, it was photographed by Rankin, who was someone we'd already been in touch with for the book and was able to access his archives and give us great scans of his work and had been very nice about it. Which is always helpful, by the way. Always helpful. That's why I give these <laughs> shout outs to anyone who is Everyone helpful. be nice. Um, So anyway, it all worked out really well. And it's now uh, opening the environmentalism section of the book. And I absolutely love it. If I'd been aware of it in 1994, which I definitely wasn't, it would have been a favorite then too. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Okay, so um, we're going to wrap up because we're almost out of time. But your wonderful, wonderful, wonderful book, which we've been discussing today is, of course, the exhibition catalog for an upcoming show at the museum at FIT. So can you tell us a little bit about what we might expect to see in the show and when it might open to the public? Sure. Well, unfortunately, we're not certain when it will open. We're waiting uh, for the Fashion Institute of Technology in general to open. And of course, the museum will be part of that. Um, We're hoping for fall 2021. So maybe October or November. And the show will follow the same themes as the book. So one of the things I've elaborated on for the exhibition is the video content. So I've actually mined a lot of these House of Style clips and uh, CNN style with Elsa Clench, for example. Um, And I've, in many cases, been able to pair objects that uh, we have in the collection with things that were shown in these interesting media highlights. So that would be the introduction to the exhibition. And then I follow the same types of themes that you see in the book from there. Yeah. And and I love this because like uh, this conversation and what you just talked about in terms of like the video content, it kind of brings us full circle back to what we were talking about at the very beginning of the podcast about how the internet really kind of reshaped fashion in the 90s or or how fashion was disseminated and how people engaged with it and and really like blowing that world wide open in a way that a lot of people hadn't been able to access before. Yes, exactly. And what's also fun is a lot of these clips, which I found on YouTube, are clearly taken from VHS tapes. So they have those lines and some of that like funny coloring. And I was like, should I see if someone can fix this? And then I thought, no, I actually think that's great to think about (laughs) where these things have come from and how they're digital and accessible now. Yeah, it it is like, I love it because like when when I teach Stephen Sprouse in class sometimes, like the only things that I'm able to access of his, of, of his collections, like going down the runway is exactly what you're talking about. And that's actually something that we didn't talk about, but we'll, we're actually going to do an episode on Steven Sprouse in the future because... That would be great. He's yeah, so important. Super, super important. And for anybody who doesn't know who Steven Sprouse is, if you're a Louis Vuitton fan, I bet you probably already do know who Steven Sprouse is. So, um, Colleen, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, my friend, for joining us. This was a delight and we can't, I've already devoured your book. And as I joked with you earlier, before we actually started recording the podcast, so has Clementine. (laughs) Um, My puppy um, got a hold of 
<laughs> Colleen's really exquisite book and chewed a little hole in the cover right before we got on recording the podcast. So, so everyone has in, in our household has has enjoyed your book. So, <laughs> thank, thank you. you. <laughs> okay, <laughs> bye bye bye, Colleen. Again, thank you. And we cannot wait to check out the exhibition when it does open, hopefully in a few months. And April, I'm sure this episode was a bit of a walk down memory lane for many of our listeners. And our listeners know we love hearing from them. We love hearing from you, Dress listeners. So this week, we invite you all to share with us some of the favorite looks that you wore in the 90s with your permission. As we said on Tuesday's episode, we'd love to share your photographs in our Instagram stories. And of course, you can DM us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast if you would like to participate or you can email us at dressed at iheartmedia.com. Yes. And as Cass suggested earlier this week, we will definitely be putting up some of our own photographs of our looks <laughs> in the 1990s. And, and also too, before we sign off today, I just want to note that Colleen's book was edited by our friend, Loren Olson at Rizzoli. And you're just like, how special and lovely is it that when two of your friends get to collaborate together on this really wonderful project? And I know for a fact that they worked super, super hard on obtaining all of the amazing, wonderful fashion photography that's in the book, which is of course, still under copyright. So that this is a tour de force of oh, yeah. like <laughs> of copyright research and image permissions, et cetera, et cetera. So brava ladies, brava. So also thank you as always to our producers, Casey Pagram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each week. We will catch you with more Dressed on Tuesday. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you get your favorite shows.